Welcome to this week's Soul Pepper Saturday Cabaret Podcast. I'm Gregory Sinclair, a resident artist here at Soul Pepper and the Word and West Director of Audio Programs. This week, the second installment of Raoul's Blues Interviews, a series of in-depth words and music conversations with some of this country's most celebrated blues and roots musicians. In this week's podcast, join Raoul Benaja and his guest, the remarkable singer, songwriter, and bluesman Ken Whiteley, on a personal musical journey unlike any you've ever heard. Good evening, everybody. Woo! Thank you so much, folks. My name is Raoul Benaja. I'm joined here this evening by my good friend, longtime collaborator, arranger, co-producer, the one and only, the legendary Mr. Terry Wilkins, ladies and gentlemen. How about it? Uh, tonight's thing is called Raoul's Blues Interviews, and uh, that's because I like to have things that have my own name in it, evidently. My band's called Raoul and the Big Time. So the good thing about having a name like Raoul is that if you say it's, if you say it's Raoul's, people basically know it's me. So one of the things I... I um, this is the second time we've done this series, uh, second night in our series, and um, I, I wrote and uh, uh, performed in a show called Life, Death, and the Blues, which was at Theatre Passamurai about a year and a half ago, and it's been on tour across Canada on and off the last uh, year and a half uh, to many different cities, and uh, one of the components of that show was I have an opportunity at the end to bring out of the audience a legend in the blues. Uh, that's what I call them, and it's the truth. And they come out of the audience, and I have a chance to interview them and perform with them. Uh, the challenge when I do it in Life, Death, and the Blues is that when it gets to the end of the evening, uh, you've already watched like a two-hour play. So that little set that we do together is like 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, it's proven to be a, a lot of fun and, and really interesting. And I'm basically using this as an opportunity that I get to play with some of my favorite musicians in the world, including Terry. So tonight, I'm so excited that we're joined by a gentleman who I've only had the chance to play with a few times, but he's an absolute legend in the Canadian roots music scene. He straddles all kinds of genres inside roots music, and he's got a really interesting story, and he's um, been, this music's been a part of his life for since he was a, a young one. So I'm very thrilled to have him here tonight. He's going to get up and perform with us, and I'm going to pick his brain a little bit. Put Put your hands together for the great Ken Whiteley, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, Ken, why don't we start with a song of your choosing. This is the other thing, too, here. We, we keep it pretty free and easy. We, uh, um, that's how we like to do it, because it's the blues. Why don't you pick a song uh, that you consider sort of a, a formative one for you, an early influence song, and then we'll talk a little bit about it after you play it. Should we do that? Okay. Well, why, why don't we start with, uh, with, with the Death Letter Blues. Now, yeah. that, that may sound like a depressing place to start, uh, but this is the blues after all. So, uh, And this is one that I learned from, from the great Sun House. And Sun House, of course, is the man who taught, uh, he taught Robert Johnson, he taught Muddy Waters, he taught Ken Whiteley, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm being a little bit facetious there, but but I first saw Muddy when I was when I was 14. Or I, I first saw Sunhouse when I was 14, and um, and it was it was electrifying to me. It was just like so intense, you know. And, and when you're 14 and you're angst driven and and you know the what does the world mean and and somebody is able to convey this depth of feeling in this kind of almost like it's like in a code right. and I wanted to crack that code you know I wanted to, to know what that was what 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 was happening and I just related to it. It, it it just touched me in my heart and so that's that was why and I you know it's like you know and, and Sunhouse played a, a resophonic guitar at, at that point in his life he had he had a, a national body guitar so these guitars were made in the designed in the 1920s by two Eastern European brothers who worked for the National Cash Register Company. And uh, it was a way to acoustically amplify a guitar, but the blues guys quickly discovered these were fantastic um, for playing slide, you know, where you take a neck of a bottle or a piece of metal tube and, and run it on the string. So, so he, had a, he had an old National, and then he had a Supro, which was one that was built in the early 60s, uh, uh, and so we had one tuned to open G, so the guitar is tuned to an open chord. 
that, and he had the other one who was tuned to open D. And um, and where did you before you sing this? Where, where did you see him when you were 14? I saw him. Uh, I saw him first play at the at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Philadelphia Folk Festival. Yeah, yeah. I'd been. I, you know, my brother and I. My, I was fortunate that my brother is three years older than me, and so I got to go places with him that my parents would not have let me go by myself. Right. And, we uh, should mention your brother Chris Whiteley is another incredible uh, Canadian uh, blues musician and a, a, a low-down blues man as well. And then, so Sunhouse, and then the, the following summer he was at, at the Mariposa Folk Festival, which right. at that point was at, at Innes Lake up near Caledon East, and and, and the the power went off. Uh, there was a there was a thunderstorm on the Saturday night concert. And they had to turn the power. There were 6,000 people in this field, and uh, alcohol was being illegally consumed, and all the, you know. And so, what are we going to do? So, Sun House comes out and sings without a PA system for 6,000 people in this field. And it was just like, uh, it was, you know, like for me, th these guys were so cool. Like, that's, it was like, then, so this, this intention was formed in me very strong at that point in my life, you know. Man, that's what I want to be, an old blues singer. <laughs> and now you are! <laughs> but like I was saying, you know, they, they could tell a story and, 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 and just imply so much more than what the, the words said. Uh, the, you, know, you know there's this whole novel here, but, but you're getting something that's this poem that's even shorter than the short story, and yet it's really a novel, you know, and, you, and they bring that whole novel to it. So here's the Death Letter Blues.
So, uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what, what year was it that you, you were 14? 1965. So, 1965. Well, actually, no. So, it was actually when I was 13. So Philadelphia was 65? Philadelphia was 64. 64. Okay. I was 13. Uh, when, and I, that same summer at, at Mariposa, I saw Mississippi John Hurt and Reverend Gary Davis. And th the festival had, was supposed to have been up in Orillia. Right. But they, at uh, the last minute, had to uh, move it to, to Toronto, and it, they held it at Maple Leaf Stadium, right? Within feet of where Terry Wilkins now lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Down it was there, at the foot of Bathurst Street. Right. And, uh, you know, Maple, the Maple Leaf Stadium was where the Toronto Maple Leafs from the International League used to play baseball. Right. They live on third base. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and um, yeah, you've often got to third base, from what I hear. Yeah. Um, oh. Oh. Tough crowd. I tough always crowd. think I was. I would have pictured it more like about first base. Uh. Than you were, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. Think about it. I'm gonna say only. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a base man all the way. He's a base man all the way. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so 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 it was so neat because all of these. Um, you know, Gary Davis had been, you know, was originally from the Carolinas, but he'd moved up to New York in the 40s. And in the 1950s, he used to, like, he used to sing on the streets of Harlem. And in the 50s, he was discovered by the, by the folk music world. And so, right. you know, um, he was one of the first uh, African-American, you know, blues and gospel performers who was performing. He was an incredible guitarist. Uh, and, and, and then... In the 60s, they began, there was like young blues scholars, guys in their 20s, you know, who were like, had, the Folkways released a, a, a compilation disc. It was actually uh, the work of, of a guy named uh, um, uh, Harry Smith, who got Folkways to release it. It was his collection, the Harry Smith Collection, hmm. Anthology of American Folk Music. And it was like the first reissuing of Robert Johnson right. and, yeah, yeah. and all of these, you know, John Hurd and all this sort of stuff. And that came out in the 50s. And it was the first a lot of people heard a lot of these old recordings that had been made as race recordings. They were right. marketed, you know, the, exclusively the for black audiences, for black right. audiences yeah. and the and the. You know, and then the old-time string bands were marketed strictly in the Appalachians and, you know, southern right. United States and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so, uh, so that was, the, the, you know, one of the first reissue records. And then people began saying, wow, I wonder if these guys are still alive, you right. know. And it, it kind of blows my mind because now that, you know, is a time that was like 50 years from now. But at the time, in the, in the early, mid-60s, it was only 30 years from when they had been young men recording. <laughs> right, right. You know, in their 20s and 30s. And, and so um, it was really, and they discovered that a lot of these guys were still playing and, right. and active. So John Hurt was one of the first Mississippi John Hurt. And John Hurt, people, do you know Mississippi John Hurt? Yes. How many, some of you are? They do. They do. This table does. And I don't think Dad does, so go ahead. Go ahead. So, Tell us a bit so John about Hurt was, he was this guy who had recorded a few songs, uh, and he lived in Avalon, Mississippi, and, and he had this twinkle in his eye, and he, he was not like an intense blues man like Sunhouse. It was right. not that aspect of the blues. <coughs> he was like a... This song's about Maxwell House coffee. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to the last drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and he says, he'd sing this song about loving spoonful. Just loving spoonful. You just got to have that loving spoonful. That loving spoonful. Down. I'm the loving spoon. 
that was, that was Mississippi John Hur was this very cool guy and and he was so but he played this finger picking style and Reverend Gary Davis as I said he had been a, a preacher on the streets of of Harlem and Gary Davis was like he was just like someone that I thought was fantastic because he was fantastic and he again had this intensity and this this power he, I remember one time uh, it was e either 67 or I think it was probably I think it was probably 67 he played at the Mariposa Folk Festival again up in Slate and uh, and it was one of those nights where summer nights were very cold and it, it was not something Kept keep him warm supposedly, and and he got drunk and he did a bad set and oh. he felt terrible about having done a bad set. So the next day he sat in a field under a tree and just played and he'd take requests forever and he just played for hours. Wow! Just sitting there under the tree, just to sort of <laughs> penance, you know, for his the reverend <laughs> for his thing and and you know. So, 
That's amazing. So you and your brother are basically uh, teenagers tearing around Toronto. Yeah. Um, how was it the records that was it seeing was it seeing Sunhouse that turn you on to the blues in particular? Was it records that your slightly older brother had around it. the house? It was all of it. It was all of it. Like we would um, so you know in the in the early '60s, right? The, there was this folk music was very popular on the radio. So you heard you know the Kingston Trio and 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 you know and then Peter Paul and Mary and stuff like that and. And so those groups, you know, were pop acts, right. even though there was like two acoustic guitars and a bass or whatever. And um, uh, so we, but we started going down to Sam the Record Man on Young Street. Right. And, and, and we started tuning in, like so you could, on Sunday nights, you could tune into WBZ in Boston. And and we, you know we could get that in Toronto and 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 hear the, this folk music sh radio show, and uh, so we, you know the you know the antenna goes out so quickly you know then you learn that you know that all of these folk singers revered Pete Seeger, and then Pete Seeger introduced us to Lead Belly, and Bob Dylan and you know and 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 so within a space of months like. You know, in our trips down to Sam the Record Man, we had gone from, you know, fairly straight folk music to this, you know, to finding all these, you know, obscure and the, the blues artists, and and that's when they started reissuing more and more of this stuff. So it was like every week we'd go down and find out, oh, look at this record, you know, right. country blues, Mississippi Delta blues, right. you know, and it, it would have Sun House and Robert Wilkins and all this, you know, wacky stuff that was just awesome. And, and, and then uh, in 1965, a guy named Lonnie Johnson moved to Toronto. Now, Lonnie Johnson was uh, a blues artist, but he was much more than a blues artist. I mean, he, Lonnie Johnson, more than any other person, actually is responsible for inventing lead guitar. Mm. He was one of the first people to play those kind of single note leads. And and uh, he, but he also recorded with Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and all these people. But during the night, and and he, you know, during the 1930s, he was a very popular blues artist, and on literally thousands of blues records. So Lonnie and he Johnson, moved to Toronto. Yeah. So Lonnie Johnson is a story I heard. So Lonnie Johnson's in Toronto, and someone says to Lonnie Johnson, "There's these two kids." There's these two kids who go down to Sam the Record Man, and there's these two kids who got their guitars, and there's these two teenage kids who are really hip to blues, and you got to meet these kids. Is that right? Well, and someone brought you over to see him. Is this is it true that well, you met him in a kitchen? Tell me that. Is that true? That is true. That so, is so true. So tell me that story. You tell me okay, well, all this from the it's, source. Okay. Well, it's not it's not quite as you know. I wish it was as romantic as as, as, as what you've just portrayed there. I mean. Uh, the most legendary blues guitar player and one of the greatest songwriters of all time in the blues is in Toronto. Yes. He, in your kitchen. Well, he was in Tom Evans' kitchen. Tom Evans' kitchen. Okay, so we were, we were part of a group at that point called Tubby Fat's Original All-Star Downtown Syncopated Big Rock Jug Band. <laughs> and, and, um, and so there was my brother Chris and I and Tom Evans. Now, Tom Evans was actually from a Macedonian background. And his dad had played fiddle and mandolin and clarinet, Crazy pipes and and all you know all, all these different Macedonian things, and and his mom was also connected to people who were on the edges of the of uh, the entertainment world, and so you know one of their one of their close friends was this guy Bill Marshall, who later went went on to to start the Toronto Film International Film Festival and different things like that, um, but but so they. So Tom's mother decided that she would manage us. <laughs> and and uh, so we, um, so they threw a big party and they invited uh, Jim McCarg and the Metro Stompers who used to play in Yorkville at the Penny Farthing and Lonnie Johnson and the Dirty Shames with Amos Garrett who was the guitar player and stuff like that. All these musicians to come to this big party, free food, free booze and 
And that was... That's an awesome manager, by the way. That's yeah. That's the greatest yeah. manager of all time. Yeah, Free yeah. Free food and booze musicians will be there like that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that, that, was, that was the thinking. And so, so we met, you know, Jim McCarg, and, and he, you know, who was, he was a Scottish bass player. And, and you know, and, and I, th- you know, and shortly after that, we met like Richard Flohill. And it was sort of like these Brits who were into early jazz right. got the blues jazz connection yes. in a way that, that in North America, there was a bit of this separation, you know, like the jazz people were over here and the blues people were over there. And right. it was like two totally different worlds that, right. that didn't meet. But, but Lonnie Johnson was clearly someone who straddled both of those worlds. And he was because he was famous both as a, as, a, an, as a jazz person as well as a blues person. And in mm-hmm. fact, you know, it was almost sort of disconcerting the first time we, we went to see him play at the Penny Farthing because he, you know, as well as ripping off these incredible blues songs, would do, I left my heart in San Francisco, you know, and, and all, this, all this sort of, all these old standards and things like that. And, and uh, you know, and we said, that's not the blues, you know. But you know that was we were young and foolish and thought we knew what the blues was and Lonnie Johnson didn't. I don't know. Was, but you know, but it, but but we did get to know and Lonnie, you know, was very gracious to us and encouraging to us. Okay, so so how did what were your interactions with Lonnie Johnson ever? Because it wasn't too long after that that Lonnie Johnson was struck by a car in Toronto yes. and passed away. So yeah. he wasn't, unfortunately, he didn't get to live out a long life in, in right. Toronto. He, he, um, yeah, well, I mean, it was just, it was just so great. And, and, and so the wonderful thing was that, that, you know, to see him play regularly, and then uh, Amos Garrett, who was a little older than we were and a better guitar player than we were, you know, was, we'd say, Amos, what's he doing? And, and he says, oh, you see when he, when, he, when he does that? You know, that's a ninth chord. And he's just sliding it up and down the neck, you know. And it's a ninth chord because you're, there's a, the D, but you've got a note that's nine notes above that, you know, and stuff like that. So that's, you know, and then, and then you know, when he plays that, that G chord, what's, what is that? You know, what's, it's, and he's, well, that's a sixth chord. So you've got the note that's, that's six notes above the G. One, two, three, four, five, six. So you've got, so that, you know, and so Amos was the guy who He was of, the gate, he was your gateway He, he was our bit. gateway. And, and, uh, and Amos is someone too who really has always embraced the jazz and blues mixing and meeting. And I'm sure some of that came oh, yeah, from yeah, yeah. that same experience of being around Lonnie that time. And 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 see we were in also really taken with the jug bands and and um you know so Amos was in a group called the Dirty Shames which was right. kind of like a jug band. Jim Queskin who had the sort of the hottest jug band that was with Maria Moldar and yes. and uh, all these great musicians, Bill Keith, who was this banjo player, was the first northerner to ever play with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and this guy, Fritz Richmond, who could play great bass parts on the washtub bass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but Queskin was, so the, the, the jug bands, there had been jug bands in the 1920s, and they were African-American bands. And there were basically two different kinds, and we may as well we should do a jug band song. Okay, maybe, yeah. Eh? I was going to get you to do and, a Lonnie Johnson, but we'll do well, a jug. We, Let's do a Lonnie Johnson, then we'll do a jug. Okay, we'll Before, go, we, we, go can't get, we can't get. But to anyway, Queskin, Queskin was into both jazz and blues. Right. And and as were we, so it was kind of like uh, we were we weren't. Although it was a little bit of a shock to hear I left my heart in San Francisco, it was it was we were more ready for it than if I had only heard Sunhouse. I yeah, was expecting yeah, yeah. that, you yeah, know, sure. so we, because we were listening to some blues, and, and you know, but, but so those kind of jazzy chords that Lonnie Johnson yeah. would play, and we may as well do one, this is one that he did a lot, and he would sometimes break into a little bit of uh, St. Louis blues, one of the, you know, the, the most recorded blues songs in history, but, uh, but this is, uh, I, Lonnie would play this all the time. Right. And, Got my 99 women and I only need one more Got my 99 women and I only need one more I get that four-legged woman gonna let the other 99 go Well, what makes my grandma love my grandma? 
thing for me is that, you know, um, as we're separated by a generation, it's so cool because, you know, having like, I mean, I understand how someone like Lonnie Johnson or Sunhouse or Reverend Gary Davis fits into the, the history of the blues. And it's so exciting for someone like me to have uh, contact with people who, who have connection to that lineage because our tradition is only handed on through recordings or through the experience of playing with other people. Yeah, yeah. And there, one thing I've I found even in my own journey in the blues is that um, you can often tell the difference between someone who has heard the record and someone who's seen the performer live or has had the opportunity to play with the performer. Right. There's a, there's a different level of them being able to do that music. And so it's so invigorating for me because I can feel when you're playing those songs that you've absolutely made them your own, but you've also, you got to see the real guy do it live and multiple nights and in, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. in different formats. Well, you know, the, 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 um, the person that were really began to transition from someone who loved the music and loved to play it, and, and, but where I really began to feel that I could own it in a sense was, was, was getting to know of someone named Blind John Davis. And Blind John Davis was a piano player. He had been the house piano player for Bluebird Records, which was RCA Victor's race label. That's what, you know, the, and so in the 1930s and 40s, he recorded with uh, literally, again, thousands of blues people. He recorded with Lonnie Johnson. He recorded with, you know, Tampa Red and Big Bill Brunzi and uh, on and on and on. You know, hundreds of different artists, Washboard Sam, on and on and on. But, but John, like, like Lonnie Johnson, who had been, you know, they'd known each other and played together, um, was someone who had this kind of broad understanding of, of this music. I mean, he had grown up in Mississippi. His father had run a, uh, you know, like a, a, you know, a place that's a bootlegger and place where they had music on Saturday nights and stuff like that. And, he's, and he, you know, I, when he got the picture that the musicians were getting paid at the end of every Saturday night, everybody there was there for a good time, but everybody else was spending money. Musicians <laughs> were getting paid. He right. thought, that's what I, that, that was <laughs> yeah. his incentive. Have a good time As he told me, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but so, so in the, in the, in the seventies, you know, we started playing with John mm. 
and I played with him in the States and, you know, got to know him at his home in Chicago. And, and he came to Toronto and he fairly came to often, Toronto, right? And he would come and stay with me when he came oh, to Toronto. Wow. So, so I helped bring him to Toronto um, in, in around 74, 75, and, and he stayed with me and then began, you know, he began coming regularly to Toronto and, and, uh, and, and we would, he would stay with me. So he was almost like blues school, yeah. you know, when he was staying with me, you know, like in the afternoons when there wasn't a gig, like Colin Linden would be over and, right. you know, sometimes Terry Wilkins <laughs> or, you know, different people, you know, would be coming over and we'd jam and he'd right. play the blues and then maybe he'd say, well, I think I'll just take a little nap now and get ready for before the gig, you know. Right. And, um, you know, and he, he drank about a bottle of bourbon a day <laughs> and uh, smoked cigars. And he was, he was totally blind. He was blinded at the age of eight in an accident. And uh, so he wasn't like, like Sonny Terry who could actually sort of see, a, you know, forms yeah. a little bit, you know, and he would always say, well, there's a beautiful woman right there in the front row, you know, and... <laughs> and uh, you know, that was, you know, it was a big joke, right? Because he's blind, but he, 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 was, he could see enough to do that. But, but, but John was, was totally blind, but his ear, like he would know all the dogs in the neighborhood. Every dog. He was, now what dog is that? What kind of dog is that? And then, he, and then he would know every person. He would know, you know, and he would say, how's Terry Wilkins? How's Colin doing? You know, what's Colin up to now? And, you know, he'd ask about everybody, you know. He would, and he kept his watch on Chicago time all the time because it didn't matter. It was like <laughs> the same day or night. And, he, he was, and John was a big star in Europe. Yes. He would go yes, and perform yeah. in Europe two, two, a almost a couple of times I, a year. I'm sure I have a recording of him on vinyl, like playing with a band in Germany. In yep, the, yep, the that's right, yep, point, yeah, yeah. And, but, but so to play with John like a six-nighter, right. you know, and, and to do that regularly, you, you know, and, and if we didn't play it with the right feeling, he would let us know. He right. would say, you know, Ken, you know, when you took that solo on that song, you didn't lay into that the right way, you know, and, and he, that's all he had to say, you know. But, but also, just every night, like, he, he might start off with, you know, like, the Louis Armstrong's West End Blues. And, and the phrase to that, like, it was Louis would play it on the trumpet. You know, that's the figure, right? And it's a... You know, listening to John, it's it's the subtleties of, of that feel, even on a piano where you can't bend the note or anything like that. But it, you know, it's, but but just you know, and 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 and. and and so whether he was playing West End blues or he or or
very cool. So, um, so uh, what you got? What are you going to take us home with here, Ken? It's been a real treat for me and Terry. It's always great to have you here. You know, uh, we're gonna ha we could do like a ten-hour podcast with you because we didn't even get to talk about all your appearances on Mr. Dress Up. Talk about other formative experiences. I, I, I sometimes say I'm one of the few people in the world who has appeared on both Saturday Night Live and Mr. Dresser. <laughs> yeah! Now, uh, uh, when were you on Saturday Night Live? I know about Mr. Dresser. Uh, with uh, Leon Redbone. Oh, yeah. yeah. Woo! Uh, I, I believe it was 1979. Cool. Yeah. So what you got for us, man? Well, so we haven't mentioned Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. And, Who, who's uh, that again? Robert Zimmerman? Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, oh, great. Yeah, well, how did... What did... So, what what did Dylan do for you? Yeah, we know what Sunhouse well, did. We know what Reverend Gary Davis did. Well, you know, Bob, a little older than I am. I mean, about 10 years older, actually. But, uh, you know, but he was listening to all of these people, you know, the, country music and the blues and stuff like that and but but really putting it together and 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 impacting the you know this this the stories and the you know what was happening in his time period and stuff like that so I can so, I ask you one quick question sure it's hard for someone in my position to understand because Bob has become such a important right. figure in folk music and in popular music yeah yeah how like in 1963, in Greenwich Village and writing songs and stuff like that, and he was a champion for for that as well as the traditional music and old music and all different kinds of music. So, so Pete, of course, was a huge influence. But as I say, he introduced me to Bob Dylan. So, but but Bob, you know, uh, you know, by '65, he he played Massey Hall. Right. You okay. Know, yeah. You know, so yeah. he was he was pretty pretty big. But was he ele he wasn't electric then? No. Was he? No. no. That but, was later. And, and, you know, you were able to, like, wait around. Like, uh, my brother and I waited around at the backstage, you know, where the little, on Shooter Street. Yeah, yeah, where the know, stage door is, yeah. Stage door, and I got his autograph and oh, stuff cool. like that. And then, you know, and then in the... Could you understand any word he said back then? Yeah. Like, he, he well, was I was like, he would just scribble his name. I, yeah. You know, uh, but then in the, in, the, in the 80s, when this cassette that I've got with me came out... You really did bring a cassette. I really did. I've got these cassettes. <laughs> I thought you were jo you brought the 45s. I thought, oh, you're joking about the cassettes, but no. Yeah, yeah, no Dad, you still got a cassette player, don't you? Yeah. Dad still anyway, got a cassette Bob player. Bob bought yeah. a copy of this cassette. Bob Dylan bought a copy of this yeah, very same cassette? Yeah, he went to see me at the Free Times Cafe. <laughs> and, uh, and on College Apples. Street. On College Street, yeah. When was he? He was in town one time and he, he came by to see him? He was shooting a movie in town. Wow. Terry, you're going? Um, He's sick of me uh, rambling on here. Why don't we play the song? Well, Terry will come back, and when he does, he'll join us on the bass. Sure. Uh, one more time, ladies and gentlemen. How about for Kim Whiteley, our great guest tonight? Shining 
You've been listening to Raul's Blues Interviews, Episode 2. This week, Raul was joined by Terry Wilkins on bass and special musical guest, Ken Whiteley. Be sure to join us here at the Young Center on September the 24th for the next installment of Raul's Blues Interviews when Raul Beneja will be joined by the internationally celebrated Paul James. Book now at the Young Center box office, seating is limited, or visit the cabaret page at soulpepper.ca. Tickets are on sale now for the fall series. The Saturday Cabaret series resumes September the 10th in the TD studio with an original musical documentary that looks behind the scenes at the infamous Rochdale College experiment at the University of Toronto. It's an evening hosted by Brendan Wall with many special musical guests. Don't forget that you can subscribe to our Cabaret podcasts on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud at soulpepper.ca. 
Music programming Soul Pepper is made possible by a generous multi-year gift from the Slate family. And our audio programs, including podcasts like these, are thanks to the support of Richard Warnham and Julia West. I'm Gregory Sinclair. Thanks for listening. will be right back. Stick around, don't be no clown.